We're exploring the Sicha of Ayeshev, Chelek Tesvav, Sicha Beis. So the Sicha is based on the first Pasik in the Parsha. Ayeshev, Yaakov, Be'eretz, Maguri, Avi, Be'eretz, Canaan. Yaakov settled in the land of his father's sojourning, the land of Canaan. And Rashi quotes the Medrash. Yaakov, in Hebrew, Bikish, Yaakov, Leishe, Bishalva. Kafetz Olav Rugzeshal Yosef, Yaakov desired to sit in tranquility, and when it was sprung upon him, the issue of Yosef. He went through so much, Tzuris, Tzuris of Esav and Dina and Rachel's passing, and uh, Laban for 20 years. He was done. He wanted to relax. He wanted to get a break. And that's how the Medrash reads this verse, Vayeshev, he settled, he wanted to relax. He wanted to be tranquil. And God in turn said, no, it's not gonna happen. And he sprung upon him the greatest challenge of his life, perhaps the issue of Yosef, Yosef's abduction and etc. And it's explained further in the Medrash that uh, because God says, is it not enough for the righteous, what they have in the world to come, that they need to have tranquility in this world? This world is not a place for tranquility. You have your reward on the other side. So the Rebbe asks a question, a few questions, but essentially I'm rolling them into one that I don't understand. What Yaakov wished here, was that appropriate or not appropriate? If it's about a personal desire, he wanted to relax or he wanted his spiritual reward, but anything to do with selfishness, that's not, that's not a characteristic of Yaakov. He's one of the patriarchs. It's known that the patriarchs are the chariots to God. They're completely subservient to Hashem, just like a chariot moves with the rider. You might say the modern example of the chariot is your car. Doesn't have an opinion. That's how the patriarchs were with Hashem. So Yaakov Avinu suddenly is interested in relaxing and having physical reward or spiritual reward even. It's not characteristic. It doesn't make any sense. It can't be about him. That wouldn't be Yaakov. And furthermore, if in fact this was a selfish desire, why in fact was it eventually granted? He did have 17 years of tranquility in the land of Egypt. So for both of those reasons, it's clear. Yaakov says the Rebbe on a deeper level of interpretation, at least this is not about him and finding tranquility. This is a whole different thing. This is not about him looking for peace of mind or reward or spiritual reward. Yaakov is a servant of Hashem. This is part of his avodas Hashem. It's part of his service. His tranquility means something that will contribute to the plan of Hashem, period. That's all it is. It's all about Hashem. What can it mean? So I'm going to present the headline of it, and then the sikha will illuminate what it means. We know the purpose of creation and the Torah is to bring heaven to earth, a home for God in the lowest place. And this is sometimes referred to in the Torah, the Gemara, that the purpose is to make peace on earth, tranquility on earth, between who and who? Between God and the world. Nominally at its birth, at its creation, the world is an enemy of God. God is completely concealed. It's the only place, this lowly world where God can be concealed, where absolute truth is the only thing that's not visible. So the world is not at peace with God. The purpose of Torah, 
the tzaddikim and the righteous and all of us through our mitzvahs is to create that peace, is to bring heaven to earth, which is what the messianic era is all about. And I guess through that, there will be world peace as well. But essentially, when we talk about peace, first and foremost, we're talking about peace between God and the world, where the world will embrace its maker and conversely, God will be comfortable here where everything physical will express the truth of its essence, which is Hashem. That's the true peace. Or in the language here, tranquility, more than peace. And that's what Jacob wants. He craves that after all the years of his service. And he elevated the sparks and of Esau and then of Laban and this and that and the other. He did so much of his service on the high lofty level of Jacob. He's ready for tranquility. Translation, he's ready for Dira B'tachtonim. He's ready for Mashiach. He's ready for this truth that he accomplished, this tranquility, to be seen and felt in the world, or if not yet in the whole world, at least within himself. He wants to feel what the world will be like when Mashiach comes in that perfect world. And it's known that while you and I cannot feel it, our mitzvahs, to be sure, accomplish it, but we will not feel it until Hashem puts on the lights and suddenly we'll realize that all the mitzvahs that were done for 3,000 years were really bringing that tranquility, that peace on earth, bringing the divine down through the godly sparks and the mitzvahs, what have you. But we won't see it until the end when the lights go on. However, the righteous, they sometimes can merit to see it. This is considered almost heaven on earth. And Yaakov wanted that. And why would he want it? Not because just so he can have his reward of heaven on earth, but because if he as the righteous tzaddik of the generation would be the first Jew to feel truth, to feel what it will be like in the ultimate when the Shia comes, that heaven and earth are total friends, they're in total tranquility. That is a huge step forward to accomplishing that goal cosmically when the whole world will feel. So this is all about his service. This is now about him relaxing on this deeper level. It's not about him looking for reward. It's about him desiring desperately for God's plan to go to fruition, at least within the person of himself, which will be a precursor to it being felt globally. Bikesh, so we read now the line of the Medrash. Bikesh, Yaakov, Leisha, Bishava, Yaakov desperately wanted to settle, to bring godliness down in a way of tranquility where the world and God are in peace. There was nothing wrong with this. This wasn't selfish at all. This was fulfilling God's purpose. But as we're going to see in a moment, um, a little bit later in the Sicha, it wasn't yet time. On the Hasidic level, it wasn't yet time. It wasn't, it was a bad request. It's a great request. However, this requires one more step. Yosef going down to Egypt and becoming viceroy and everything else that happened. And then Yaakov did have it. And that's how the rest of the Medrash is read. It was sprung upon him, the issue of Yosef translation in the way the Rebbe is explaining on the Hasidic level. The issue of Yosef was the one missing piece. However, when Yosef came about and he went down to Egypt and everything that happened, aha, Yaakov did in fact experience tranquility, physical tranquility, which is a reflection of the tranquility that we're talking about here, the revelation of Hashem to be felt within him in an open way, the way it will be in the time of Mishnah. As we will explore a little bit later in the Sikh. 
And to explain this, what is so special, what is so difficult, what is so miraculous about this tranquility? And if it's so great, how come he couldn't do it without Yosef? And what about Avram and Yitzchak? Why couldn't they do it? What is this all about? So the Rebbe, I'm going to step back, and the Rebbe preface it by talking about mitzvahs. Um, because the mitzvahs are the thing that uh, create the Dirubatachtonim, that bring Hashem to earth. That whatever it takes to, to, to bring Mashiach, to make the world holy, the mitzvahs bring Hashem to earth, they elevate the sparks, they connect God and the world. Now in mitzvahs, the Rebbe points out, we find two opposite extremes. On the one hand, we're told that while many mitzvahs have reasons that are given, they're not the real reason. Ultimately, mitzvahs are beyond any reason whatsoever. And this is true even for the mitzvahs that we think we understand why. Ultimately, we're supposed to do them with a spirit of no, we don't understand why. All mitzvahs, even what's called mishpat and the rational mitzvahs, are supposed to be done with the same super rational approach like hook. Why are you doing it? Hashem said so. That is the ultimate level of doing mitzvahs. No reason. And why is that so? Why is it optimum to do mitzvahs for no reason? How could a person be motivated to do something that has no reason? So it's explained because if you think about it, the things that are most important to us have no reason. Anything that we want for a reason is not all that important. It's only reasonably important. It's a means to an end. However, when I want something for no reason, it's because I really want it, period. Think about life. Most things that we do, we want for a reason. So a person goes to work, gets a job. It's important, but there's a reason. So he can earn money. If he's not earning money, he's not gonna go to work. Person earns money, but there's a reason. So he can buy what he needs to sustain himself and his family. A person needs the things that he needs to sustain himself and his family. But that itself is also not an end in itself. It's in order that he can live. So that he can live, him and his family can live. But that final fourth one, and why does he want to live? There is no why. So while the first three steps have a why, why do you need a job? For money. Why money? To get stuff. Why stuff? To live. Why live? That's not a healthy question. When we find ourselves asking why we want to live, we're not doing well. We're, we're, we're hurting. Because that's the essence. That's what's called an essential will. It's not a will leading up to something else. It's not an external will or an important external will. It's an essential will. It's, there's no why. Similarly, you know, you have friends. Why do you like this person? because he's nice, this person, because he's generous, this person, because he's smart. Why do you like your kids or your parents? There is no why. If you're a healthy parent, there is no why. What do you mean why? This is my child. And therefore not having a reason is not a negative. It doesn't make the project less important. It makes it infinitely more important. In fact, if there is a reason, that's an indication. So if mitzvahs, coming back to our chart, if mitzvahs ultimately were all about their reasons, then they're not all that important. Hashem wants them because. Anything that you can want because can be accomplished perhaps in another way. It's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. 
Says Torah, no. Says Chassidus, no. Do the mitzvah because Hashem said so, period. There's no reason. How could there be a reason? It's as important as Hashem himself. It's his essential will. He doesn't want you to put on film or light Shabbos, like or eat kosher. Because that's what he wants. He wants that. And therefore, it's not negotiable. It's important to the nth degree, just like a person wants to live. Just like a person loves their child. No reason. Hashem wants our mitzvahs. Extraordinary. But then we find the opposite. That every mitzvah has reasons. Let alone the mitzvahs of mishpatim, the judgments, the rational mitzvahs, and even the aidas, the testimonies. But even the chukim, the statutes, which we refer to as mitzvahs without reason, they also have many reasons given to them. Many reasons. There are four levels of Torah study, arguably, right? The pshat, the literal, and the allegorical, and the hint, and the mystical. And on every one of them, there's reasons for each mitzvah. Hasidus will tell you an explanation for every mitzvah in all the four worlds, uh, Atzilus, Maria, Yitzira, see all the worlds. Then there's any number of reasons for mitzvahs. If you start studying Torah and Hasidus and Kabbalah and Medrash, all of them have different reasons for every mitzvah, including the so-called chukim statues that have no reason. So how do you reconcile these two total polar opposites? On the one hand, by definition, it can't have a reason because if it does, not God's essential will. On the other hand, it's got all these reasons. And they're part of Torah. That means they're true. They're not excuses. Chas v'shom. Another point where we find opposites in mitzvahs. On the one hand, we're supposed to do mitzvahs for no reward. It's in Pirkei Avos, chapter one. Do mitzvahs, not for reward. Why would you do it for reward? That's so foolish and shallow. And it goes in line with the first point. If mitzvahs are Hashem's essential will, you're doing them for a reward? They're beyond reward. They're just, they are the reward. They're absolute truth. It's like telling somebody, I'll, I'll live if you, if you pay me. I don't need to be paid to live. Life is the payment. Doing mitzvahs is the payment because it's the end in itself. And therefore it is axiomatic that the optimum way of serving Hashem, the right way, is not for reward. Yeah, when someone's a child, you have to buy them off. When someone is a the lower level of service, but ultimately, no. Don't be like servants who serve Hashem looking for reward. Be like servants who look for no reward. Unquote, chapter one of Ethics of Our Fathers. Because it's Hashem's essential will. It's life itself. You don't need to be paid off to live, to do something so essential. And yet, there's the other side too. Maimonides says that one of the principles of faith is there's reward in this punishment for our deeds. And this is not just a fact that Hashem is just, you know, oiling the wheels a little bit, greasing the wheels to make it sweeter. It's a principle of faith. If it was just not a principle of faith, then we would say, well, it's not that important. Really, mitzvahs in principle have no reason. They're God's essential will. However, God's a nice guy, and he doesn't like to make it difficult. He wants to make it fun. He doesn't like to take away reward for anyone, any creature, even an animal. So he's giving us rewards, but that's not what matters. That's childish. But then Maimonides says, no, it's a principle of faith. It's one of the 13 principles. Yud Gimel Ikrim, the axioms of Jewish faith, 
that there is reward for our mitzvahs, why is it that important that it's one of the principles of faith? The principle of faith is that there really isn't the reward. It's beyond reward. So how do we reconcile these two columns, the left column and the right column? The column that says that mitzvahs are beyond their God's essence, and therefore beyond reward and beyond reason. And the column that says, but in fact, there are many reasons on every level of Torah study and understanding, and there is reward for every single mitzvah. In fact, living a mitzvah life will pay off in this world and in the next world, and it'll make you happier emotionally, mentally, familially, financially, in every way. How do you reconcile these two polar opposites? Rebbe explains that this is because the essence is everywhere. Remember, we're talking the whole time about Hashem's essential will. Basically, within a mitzvah is his essence, something that he wants in his essence, not a detail, as explained about earlier. And if something is the essence, there's a rule. The essence is everywhere. The essence of something permeates in every place. I'm going to give two quick examples. What does it mean the essence of that is everywhere? So one example is take a look at the human body. And the, the, the human body has many attributes that it gets from the soul. It can think, it can touch, it can smell, it can see, it can hear, etc. All of these have an address within the body where they reside. They're localized within the body. Your eyes, your power of vision, it's a soul power. It's not a body power. But it works over here. It doesn't work everywhere. Power of audibility or hearing is in the ears. Power of speech is in the mouth, intelligence in the brain, etc. Even though these are all soul-based energies, but they're localized. They're therefore location-specific. But then what about the essence of this soul? We're talking here, I'm not talking about the Echidah Shebenefesh, the essence of the godly soul. I'm just using by way of an example, the essence of life, which means the very fact that I'm alive. Where is that? Am I alive in my eyes? Am I alive in my ears? Am I alive in my heart? Am I alive in my feet? In my brain? We're alive everywhere equally, from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes. You're equally alive. Life is not localized. It's everywhere. In my role as a shliach, I have on numerous occasions, unfortunately, or what have you, been at a bedside when a person leaves this world. And that moment of transformation is seen everywhere. It's not like if you're looking at his eyes, you see a change. Or the heartbeat, even by taking a pulse. You see it almost instantly on the bottom of his toes. It goes cold almost instantly. Because life is indivisible, it's almost like it's essential. And therefore, you can't say, where am I alive? You're totally alive. It's everywhere. So that's an example of the fact that when something is a specific detail of the soul, it's in one place or the other. But if something is the essence, it's soul itself. It's not an extension of soul. It's not an attribute of soul, a power of the soul. It's the soul then you can't pin it down in any place. It's everywhere. This is going to help us understand the point of mitzvahs. That yes, mitzvahs are beyond reason and beyond reward because they're God's essence. 
But by the same token, being that they're God's essence, they will be felt everywhere. And therefore, they're not about any reason, but they will make sense on every single level. We don't do them for reward. That's foolish. They're totally beyond reward. However, they will be rewarding in every level, in this life and in the afterlife, and in every aspect of, of all of the above. Because how not? If you're touching the essence, it's going to be felt in every single place. This helps us explain the two extremes of mitzvahs um, and, um, and how, therefore, uh, the left column and the right column go hand in hand. And this explains why mitzvahs, yes, they're Hashem's essential desire, and therefore they have two opposites. And this is the core of the sicha. Something that is coming from the essence, it's going to have polar opposites. It's going to be beyond any detail, and it's going to permeate every detail. Just like the example I said before of life itself. It's beyond the mind and beyond the heart and beyond the hands and beyond the feet. And yet it's everywhere, because that's the definition of something that's beyond, something that's the essence. It's nowhere and it's everywhere. It's beyond and therefore it permeates. And that's exactly how it is with mitzvahs. I don't feel a need to cover example two. It's going to be a distraction. So therefore, now that we understand a little bit how essence works, so to speak, it remains aloof and permeates everywhere because it's the truth of the thing. And if it's the truth, it's everywhere. The truth of my soul is life itself, and therefore it's not going to have a specific address in me. And therefore, we hence we explain the beauty of mitzvahs. They're beyond reason, but they make sense on every level. They're beyond reward, but they will reward every aspect of life and every form of life and in every level, because how not? It's Hashem's essence. Essence is felt everywhere. It's a difficult concept, but the Rebbe is making sense of it. Based on that, let's now revisit Jacob's desire. Yaakov's desire revisited. We said earlier that what does Yaakov want? This is at the end of the Sikha. I'm putting it here now for clarity, and then I will fill in some of the middle parts of the Sikha that I'm skipping now. The Rebbe said, as we explained earlier, not that Yaakov wants to sit tranquil, tranquil, just because he wants a good life, or just because he wants to get his reward. It's not about him at all. He wants Hashem's light to be revealed. He wants the purpose of mitzvahs and Torah. In fact, the purpose of all of creation, God's essence to be felt in this world, to be revealed in its fullest glory, at least within him as one person, which will be a, a beginning to the process when the whole world will feel it. And how will you know that Hashem's essence was revealed, in him at least? When there's tranquility, he sits, he settles in tranquility. Translation on the Hasidic level, as mentioned earlier in passing, that the divine truth is felt, it's settled. It's settled right down here. It's not a heavenly concept. Divine truths are not the domain of angels and souls and heavens and sephirot. Divine truths, they're settled. They're right here in physicality. You know, the way it will be when Mashiach comes, uh, when you want to go pick. Uh, a, a fruit on Shabbos, the fruit will speak. I don't know if it'll say it verbally or 
or in, in body language, the same way you don't want to put your finger in fire because the fire sort of says, don't touch me, I'll get burnt. The, the fig is the language. The fig will say, don't pick me, it's Shabbos. Because how could you? It's Shabbos. Today, that's not the case. Today, you just see a fig. And God forbid you could decide to do it because we don't see the truth of creation. When the truth is revealed, the fig will say, what do you mean you're picking me? It's Shabbos, it's Hashem's world, it's fire. You can't do this, it's, it's impossible. And Yaakov wants that to be felt within him at least. And then through him eventually through the world. And that's what it means, he wants to settle the divine energy, permeate the world in a way of tranquility, the ultimate of the peace of heaven and earth, the peace of of God's essence. Shalom ba'olam, the language is. The Torah was given to make peace on earth, which in essence means that godliness and worldliness go hand in hand because the world is just an extension of Hashem. And he wants it to be revealed. He doesn't want it to be that way just in essence that it's hidden. And one day when Mashiach comes, we'll have it. He wants to feel it. He wants to feel the tranquility. He wants the world to feel, at least to him, as a home for Hashem. And why not? Well, what do you mean, why not? Mashiach's not here yet. Then how can you feel Hashem in a physical world? It's hidden. It's physical. Mm -mm. Remember what we just said. If you touch the essence, it permeates everything. Of course, Hashem is beyond everything, but he's the essence of everything. And therefore, it should be felt. It should be obvious in his soul, in his service of Hashem. The Rebbe says that really, why was Yaakov the first one to do this? Because only he can do this, unlike Abraham and Yitzchak, they can't. And the Rebbe explains this very briefly, that as the text says, he settled in the land of his father's sojourning. This is so beautiful. It's based on a mimer, the Sikha. So therefore, there's so much beautiful, if you will, Hasidic poetry, where everything just fits in perfectly. He settles in the land of his father sojourning. I on purpose on the top line of the screen, I put the apostrophe after the S because in the Hasidic context, it refers to both Abraham and Yitzchak. To them, the land was a place of sojourning, a place of Mugure, of a ger. They were foreigners here. Abraham and Yitzchak, such lofty souls. They were uncomfortable in the physicality. They didn't see the physical world as hospitable to godliness. Uh, the language in the Sicha is that they were really on the level of Atzilus. They were really somewhere in heaven, because that's what a tzaddik is, it's a soul from heaven. And they were visiting. And they were standing in the perch of heaven, even though they were physically on earth, but they, they stayed away, they stood in heaven, and they shone divine light, hospitality, digging wells, whatever they did in their service. They were trying to shine light, but all of this was as divine light coming as a visitor to the world. Yaakov is the first one chosen one of all the patriarchs standing on their shoulders, I guess, that he is able to bring heaven to earth. He's able to settle it. He's not sojourning. He's comfortable in the world. He has no issue. He doesn't see the world as in conflict with Hashem. Why should it be? And the reason is because he's known as the middle pillar. Avram is the right, chesed, love. Yitzchak is the left, gevura, discipline. Yaakov is the middle, compassion or truth. And it's known that the middle pillar goes all the way from end to end. This is, uh, this is symbolized, so to speak, or embodied in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which each wall had pillars that held the wall together. But there were two pillars that only went halfway. A top pillar that went halfway and a bottom pillar that went halfway. Each of those went from end to middle. 
But then there was a middle pillar, what's called Briach HaTichon, the center, central pillar, which went from end to end. Kabbalistically, the other two pillars that don't go all the way, they represent Abraham and Yitzchak respectively. Because each of them has an attribute, and it only goes so far. Abraham's light shines down, Yitzchak's light brings it up, but at the end of the day, heaven and earth are still, you can't connect them. They're too distant. Whereas Yaakov represents the attribute of truth, Truth goes from end to end. And it's not the place here to explain it in detail, but suffice it to say that being that Yaakov, what does it mean that he's truth? He goes all the way to the essence of Hashem. And as for the conversation here, once you touch the essence, it goes from top to bottom. And that's the reason why Yaakov is able to reconcile both Abraham and Yitzchak. He has a harmony between kindness and discipline. They're two opposites. How can you bring together opposites, fire and water? And the answer is, uh, you know, if, 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 if you feel the essence, then they get along. Think about the human body. We have a mind and heart, they're very opposite. And yet, if they both realize they're part of the same person, they work hand in hand. With hands and feet, they're very different. But if they realize they're part of the same person, they work hand in hand, they're not in conflict. So it's it, it just a, a shallow explanation for the concept that when you reach the essence, the middle pillar goes all the way to Hashem's crown to the essence. If you ever saw a Kabbalistic diagram, the middle column goes all the way to the crown of Hashem and all the way down. And that does not have any break. And therefore, Yaakov is the attribute of truth. He's the one standing on the shoulders of his forebearers. But they were, as said, uncomfortable, so to speak, in the physical. They stood in the world of Atzillus from that spiritual perch, and they shined, they shone divine light. Yaakov settles in the land. It's not the sojourn of Yaakov. It's the sojourn of his father. For him, he's at home here, because he's the attribute of truth. Truth touches the essence. And in truth, the world is God's extension. It's all it is. It's actually part of Hashem's essence because you can't get away from essence. As we discussed earlier, essence is, permeates everywhere. And therefore, he's the one that can do this. He wants, he's the first one to have this dream, to wish to sit in tranquility, to settle godliness in a place that is completely tranquil with, with God's truth right here on earth. Says the Rebbe beautifully that what? That Hashem said, you're right, it's a good idea, but you're not quite ready yet. You have to have the step, one more step of Yosef, who's the extension of Yaakov. And Yosef has to go down to Egypt and be a slave there and then become viceroy there and then transform the world. Because again, if the idea is a Yaakov, you're trying to bring heaven to earth, you didn't yet hit bottom. You were involved in the earth, you worked by Laban for 20 years. You were involved in all kind of business, commerce, sheep, you name it. You were involved with cheaters and liars. You've been involved in physical. You know the world. And you did it all in divine sparks and with the sticks and all of his holy service and mitzvahs that he did. He did so much physical work and he's ready to, um, and he has the 12 tribes that he brought back from Laban, from Gashmias, from the, from, the, from the world of exile. He's, he's been in the world, but he didn't hit bottom. He didn't quite go to Egypt. That's bottom. Furthermore, wherever he was till now, he was still his own boss, even as he was abused and overworked. Whereas in Egypt, Yosef, who is, represents Yaakov's extension, he's thrown in a pit, he's a slave, he's a servant, even as viceroy, he doesn't really have the end last word in the end, he still has to answer to the Pharaoh. And therefore, going to the lowest place, Yaakov, through Yosef, his extension, hits Egypt, the lowest place, and he hits it in a form of servitude and slavery. He is now in the pit of physicality, and yet it does not 
pull him down. In fact, he doesn't demoralize him. In fact, he elevates Egypt. He has them circumcised, according to many opinions. He refined the exile so that the exile should not be able to destroy the Jewish people throughout history, chas v'shalom, et cetera, et cetera. And he became a source of livelihood for the Jewish people and for the whole world. He, he led the world from that lowest place. Aha, now we're ready for tranquility. Now we start to see that the world is hospitable and in fact at peace with Hashem. And that's what Yaakov experienced physically, 17 years of peace and tranquility because his son had gone down to Egypt and Joseph is the heir of Joseph, is the extension of Joseph, as per the second verse of today's portion, which is quoted very often in Hasidus, Eileh told us Yaakov, Yosef, this is the story of Yaakov, Yosef. And it continues. But in that context, it means that Yosef is the story of Yaakov. He's Yaakov's vision. And therefore, Yosef needs to complete it. So if you take a look at the whole first four lines of the screen, the whole thing has a whole different meaning, what he wants and why he has to wait for Yosef. It's not a bad desire at all. His desire was to bridge heaven and earth. His desire was to utilize his attribute of truth of the middle column that touches the essence and therefore permeates everywhere. And he wanted to feel at least within himself and perhaps shine it onto the world. Ain't it There's nothing but Hashem. The world is Hashem because his essence is felt. And when you touch the essence, it's total infinity. It reaches everywhere. There's nothing excluded. And that's really what's happening here. Once that is accomplished, so I want to revisit a few details in the Sicha that seem to me to fit very neatly into those two columns, which makes it easier to, to, to conquer. I'm not touching every single aspect, but much of the aspects of the Sikha. And that is, I'm revisiting once again, there's the two columns, right? We're trying to touch the essence, but the essence permeates everywhere. It's like perhaps running beyond the world. And when you touch the whole essence beyond the world, it permeates every aspect of the world. So the first section we already covered in mitzvahs. The God's deepest will, they're beyond reason, they're beyond reward, but they will absolutely have reasons and rewards. The yin and the yang. It's the highest thing, it's the essence, not the highest, it's the essence. And therefore it's everywhere, which is Yaakov's miracle, the attribute of truth. He can bridge that. So the Rebbe says, we find this, and this was Yaakov's wish to feel it in himself. How does a person feel this? You and I, not necessarily, but the righteous can feel it. There's a concept of you get your reward in this life, and that's what Yaakov wanted. He wanted to see Mashiach within his lifetime, even before the time came, as for the reasons I said earlier, because it would be a stepping stone to bringing it to the whole world. So what does he need? He needs these two attributes. Again, since the concept of Mashiach, where heaven and earth are tranquil, requires two extremes, requires a recognition a revelation of Hashem's essence beyond everything worldly. And at the same time, therefore, will permeate everything worldly. So within the tzaddik's avoida, within his service, he has to have these two extremes. On the one hand, total bittle, total self-negation. He has to be, it's not about him at all. <laughs> he's just a servant. There's no him. Because he's dealing with the essence. On the way the tzaddik can do it. 
And yet on the other hand, there has to be the other extreme. That he's serving Hashem, not robotically at all, but with total joy and pleasure. How could you have these two opposites? It's very similar to the two opposites that we had in mitzvahs on the lines above that. He's totally negated. Or no, he's totally engaged. And the answer is, again, these two are two halves of the same coin. Because if he's totally negated, it's not about him at all. Aha! So what is it about Hashem? Now when he does Hashem's will, he starts to feel a pleasure because now he becomes one with Hashem. So it's a two-pronged type of thing. You might call the language would be bitl and yichud, total self-negation, but it's beyond self-negation to the point where he's actually one with Hashem. At the highest level, tzaddik, where Hashem almost speaks through him, uh, speaks through him, etc. And therefore, he does have pleasure. He does have joy, but not with his own stuff, material or spiritual. He has joy with Hashem's stuff. He has pleasure because Hashem has pleasure. And therefore, he doesn't have to be robotic about it at all. It permeates him. But the him is all about Hashem. Hashem's pleasure, Hashem's joy, they become his. These are very extreme. Self-negation means there's no experience. There's no human experience. There's nothing. People. Here we're talking about a person who enjoys it, who has pleasure, who has simcha in his service. But on the highest, this is very high level, obviously, but tzaddik, the two go hand in hand. When he's truly bottled, truly self-negated, truly nullified, where there is no ego whatsoever. So what's left? Hashem's will. Hashem's will becomes his ego, becomes his personality. And boy, does he have pleasure and joy, because there's nothing more pleasurable than Hashem. So you might say it becomes a oneness. That's what I'm putting in the right column. Very similar to the whole buildup of the sicha. Something beyond now permeates everywhere. He's bittal, he's negated, he's beyond. There is no him. But by the same token, it will therefore permeate everything about him. And he will have bring to the table in his service of Hashem. It will bring pleasure and joy and every action. Because it's touched him on his essence. And the Rebbe sweetens this up with the next two parts of the Sikh. There is something we say every day in our prayers before the Elena. And we say the scholars bring abundance of peace to the world. And he brings two verses. The second verse is there is a shalom there is an abundance of peace to those who love your tongue. The Rebbe discusses from the previous Rebbe's a, a mimer, I believe it's a mimer. Now, why does the verse say there's abundance of peace to those who love your Torah? This verse is being brought to prove that the Torah scholars bring peace to the world. It should say there's abundance of peace to those who study your Torah. Why those who love your Torah? And why your Torah? Those who study Torah. So the Rebbe says, because this is exactly the point. What does it mean, abundance of peace? Torah brings peace on earth because Torah reveals Kedusha, reveals godliness. But abundance of peace means absolute peace, which in the context of this conversation means the revelation of Atzmas, the revelation of Hashem's in essence, total infinity, where there's never, where there's no opposition. Essentially, it means Mashiach. 
It means geula. It means a perfect world where there'll never be klipa, there'll never be any place for opposition. Because how can there be? And why not? Because Hashem's essence is revealed, and the essence is everything. There's no opposition. The opposition is part of the essence. And therefore, obviously, it joins forces with Kedusha, with holiness. So we say abundance of peace. We're talking about a perfect peace. Hashem's essence is revealed. If Hashem's essence is revealed, and how? Through Torah scholars. Because they, Torah is, the, is the, the revelation of Hashem's light. But specifically, they reveal it. The language is by those who, uh, who love, not who, stu- not who study Torah, who love your Torah. It's all about Hashem. Not just about Torah. It's about Hashem because it's about the essence. It's about the giver of the Torah. The essence of Hashem. And therefore, the language is, there's abundance of peace to those who love your Torah, not those who study Torah. Study Torah is nice. Those who study Torah out of love for you, for the giver of the Torah, meaning they access the essence, they will have abundance of peace. They will be able to bring that essential light everywhere and create the tranquility that we're talking about. Where heaven is earth. And here the Rebbe also explains in detail why it says, those who love your Torah, if we're speaking about the righteous, accessing Hashem's essence, and how do you access the essence as you look in the left column? It's, it's through self-negation. How do I access essence? I put myself completely aside. There's no room for anything else when Hashem has bittle. So it should be more mitzvah-like than Torah-like. Mitzvah-like is, is more about self-negation. You just do the act. Furthermore, mitzvahs are the are done in the physical, and they're closer to Hashem's plan of elevating, the bringing God to the lowest physical plane. So it should have said that mitzvah people bring peace and abundance to the world because mitzvah means self-negation and physicality. Heaven touches earth. And yet it says, no, the lovers of your Torah. But the answer is the aforementioned. Torah has a greater unity with Hashem than mitzvah. In a mitzvah, I'm like a servant who's totally negated, and I do what Hashem wants, not what I want. But we're still separate people, Hashem and me. Torah study is a place of unity. It's a little bit like we talked about earlier, the tzaddik's service of Hashem that comes in a way of oneness. The tzaddik absolutely experiences joy and pleasure. Not because he's separate, God forbid. He's even more united. He's gone from the step of self-negation to the step of oneness with Hashem, where he has the pleasure, but it's not about him. It's a pleasure of Hashem. Similarly, Torah study is, is something that, that a person thought are aligned with Hashem. It's a much greater unity than the alignment of mitzvahs. Mitzvahs is just putting myself aside. I'm not in charge. I do what he wants like a servant. Torah study, it's almost like my mind is fused with his. And hence the language. This is a, a, apparently a, an explanation of the previous Rebbe that the Rebbe is borrowing here. But the language is that the abundance of peace, this connection of heaven and earth, this tranquility that the Sikha talks about, comes about not through studying Torah, but through those who will love you, Hashem. That's total negation. But what do they love about you? Specifically Torah, even more than mitzvah. They also have the right column of the oneness, not just the self-negation. Rebbe adds this piece, all of these obviously make it a puzzle and make it sweeter. Uh, the Rebbe has this piece, which is a direct correlation to what we just learned. 
that that the scholars, the tzaddikim, bring heaven to earth. And we said before, they bring it in these two pronged ways, a mitzvah-like self-negation and a Torah-like oneness. The two sides of this sicha, the two sides of the essence, and then permeating. So the Rebbe says this fits perfectly with two commentaries on the first verse in today's portion, the same verse, Vayesha. One given by the Magad of Mezrich and one by his successor, the Alter Rebbe, and both of whom are heroes, of, if you will, of Yutes Kisle, which happened on the Tuesday of the portion of Ayesha by both respectively, some, some uh, 26 years apart. It's famous known that the Magad of Mezrich was on his deathbed and he was saying goodbye to his students, the great righteous students, the Chabraya Kadisha, the holy people, the holy Chevra. And they were surrounding his bed, etc. And he gave them his blessings and parting words as a group and individually. And then he said to the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, of Shnei Zalman, who was the youngest of all, he said to him, Yutes Kislev is Unzer Hilula. The Yutes Kislev, that was the day that he's leaving the world. It's our Hilula, which is the Kabbalistic term for a yard site or a wedding or a celebration. Because a yard site is, in a sense, a wedding that the soul joins Hashem. And the Magad said these mysterious words. It's our Hilula, because 33 years later, not 30, 20, 26 years later, the Alter Rebbe on that very same day had the miracle of the release of prison of Yutes Kislev and the founding of Chabad and etc. The rest is history. And therefore the Magad and the Alter Rebbe shared Yutes Kislev, both on Tuesday, which apparently is obviously important, and both on the Tuesday of portion of Ayeshev, and therefore it is considered central, if you will, to the whole thought process of Yutes Kisle. The two commentaries, respectively, of the Magid and the Alter Rebbe on the first verse of this Torah portion. And what are the two commentaries? The Rebbe is going to say the Magids will, will fit right into the concept of mitzvah-like self-negation bittel. That's the first step. And the Alter Rebbe's interpretation on that verse will fall into the right column of Torah-like oneness. Because the Magid translates that verse, obviously this is a Hasidic interpretation. The Yaakov descends to earth, I'm reading, Yaakov descends to earth where he collects the sparks of his father Hashem. That's how he reads that verse. By Yeshev Yaakov, Yaakov sits, he settles, which means he descends. Be'eretz, in the land, that means in the earth. Megure Aviv. The collection of the sparks. Megure can mean collection. Like a farmer collects the wheat of his father in heaven. And that's how the Magad interprets this verse. The Alter Rebbe has a whole different Hasidic interpretation. The Yaakov attributes true fear of heaven, Yerushamayim, as derived from supernal wisdom. How does he read that into the verse? That's what Vayeshev Yaakov, uh, that Yaakov achieves, he brings down, if you will. Megure Aviv. Megure can also mean fear. There's a verse in the Torah, the portion of Bullock, by Yogar and Moab. Moab was afraid. And that word by Yogar is used, like Megure, it could mean fear. Yiroshamayim, fear of heaven, which is an extraordinary level. When you feel Hashem's presence and fear law, the higher fear where Hashem is real, not a fear of punishment and not a fear even of sin, but it's a fear of Hashem on a high level of total oneness with Hashem. And where does it come from? Megure Aviv, it's the fear that descends from his father, Kabbalistically, when we're talking about the soul service, Father means Chachma Ilah, the supernal wisdom of Hashem. So these two columns now represent the interpretation of the Magad is 
that Yaakov comes on earth and collects his father's sparks, which basically means mitzvahs, which in the context of our discussion is total subjugation. He's doing what he's got to do. He goes down to the lowest place and he picks up those sparks and he doesn't have an agenda of his own. He's a servant. He's picking up the physicality. He's willing to descend to the lowest place. He's a Shem servant. Self-negation, like a mitzvah. Then there's the Altarebbe's interpretation that Yaakov also achieved the highest level of oneness. Yirah is oneness with Hashem, the higher level of fear. Related to Chachmei law, to supernal wisdom, which is the source of Torah study, which in plain English, or <laughs> not so plain, but ultimately means that what? That he didn't just negate himself to Hashem, but that negation came to the point where he was totally one with Hashem. And therefore, these two commentaries line up with the earlier two meanings of the entire structure of the Sicha and the entire plan that Yaakov is able to try to accomplish, which he ultimately did accomplish later on in life, namely revealing Hashem's essence in the highest place and therefore allowing it to flow and permeate every single aspect of creation as per the long discussion that we had. And that becomes the meaning of the original verse and how the Rebbe reads it it's extraordinary. I want to just conclude by saying that perhaps this is a sicha. This is, uh, we're learning this the week of Yutas Kislev. And the Rebbe even mentions Yutas Kislev in the sicha. And what is Yutas Kislev? Chassidus is the oil of Torah. And, and especially Chassidus Chabad. The oil means that it permeates everywhere. Oil permeates every, saturates every part of a, of, a, of some of a substance that it's and it's in. It's not one ingredient. It permeates. And therefore, oil is representative of Chassidus. What is Chassidus? The essence, especially Chabad Chassidus, the essence of Torah. Not the deeper part, the higher, even higher, but the essence of Torah. And therefore, it reaches everywhere. And therefore, because it's the essence of Torah, as for the Sicha, if something is the essence, it reaches everywhere. And hence, became Chabad. Chabad means that the human mind comprehends godliness, which is a contradiction in terms if there ever was one. As the famous line of the Baditra Rebbe, when he saw the Tanya, he said, it's extraordinary, it's amazing that he was able to put such a big God in such a small book. It was his play on words, obviously, because physically the book is small, the Tanya was always small. But but proverbially, what about the Baditra Rebbe is saying, he's a great tzaddik, he's not just saying things to uh, play on words. Baditra Rebbe is saying that Chabad, Hasidus, accesses the great God, infinity, the essence, puts it in a small book, namely Chabad, intellect, the human mind, I don't care how smart you are, it's finite. How do you bridge those two? Because you're touching the essence, and the essence reaches everywhere. As the Rebbe explains in many sikhas, that the Rebbe brought it to Chabad, which is a much greater step forward from the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid, because he brings it, and it fits right into the sikha, the Magid is still on the level of subjugation. Where there isn't that total oneness of Hashem in the world, and the Alta Rebbe brings it to Chabad, where the mind is a vehicle and a vessel for Hashem's truth and is able to come down. And the Rebbe says in other Sichos that this is not just a one time thing of the Alta Rebbe, but every subsequent Rebbe brings it down lower and lower and lower, uh, perhaps. And, and, uh, and the Rebbe says elsewhere that with the Rebbe Rashab, for example, in the advent of creating the yeshiva, where the students studied Hasidic just like they studied Talmud. It was a huge step forward to, to this permeation of this truth. Before Tom Chetunim was established by the fifth Rebbe, by the Rebbe Rashab, Hasidus was studied by uh, only great scholars. 
not necessarily by students. And here it was put into a curriculum of a yeshiva. You study Talmud, you study Jewish law, you study Hasidus. And the reason is, says the Rebbe, because the fifth Rebbe was able to bring it. It was part of his job. He was another level of Yaakov Avinu to, to touch the essence so much that the human mind, the Alta Rebbe brought it to the, what's called the Seichel Eliki, the divine thought process of the divine soul. And the Rebbe Rashab, says the Rebbe elsewhere, brought it to the human mind of the animal soul which it can be understood in the previous rabbi further brought it down and translated it in different languages where everybody could study, even Gentiles, understand Hasidus, which is ultimately the plan when Mashiach comes, the whole world will know Mashiach. Perhaps this is already poetic license. Just like Yaakov Avinu couldn't accomplish it until Joseph descended to Egypt, until the previous rabbi came to America. And as the rabbi talks about it, the lower part of the lower hemisphere and, and through our rabbi to bring godliness, I'm being recorded, to bring godliness into the physicality in the full sense of modernity. Till that point, where is the Torah? Where is Hasidus? It's in Europe, it's in the shtetl. That's wonderful. But that represents that it's limited. It's like Avram and Yitzchak, in a sense, by comparison to our Rebbe. That the, that the world, they're not comfortable bringing divinity into physicality. In the shtetl, Hasidus can thrive. Comes along the previous Rebbe and then the Rebbe. Joseph, if you will, and says, are you kidding? We're going to settle Hasidus in the center of the world, the biggest, most busiest city in the world, and from there bring Hasidus to every single corner of the world. There's no place in the world where Hasidus and Torah and godliness isn't comfortable, and where that city is not going to be hospitable to a shliach and a shlucha who will bring it there. This is the ultimate essential truth of infinity of Hashem, which permeates every single place, and which hopefully through our Joseph, our Yosef, the uh, Rabbeim, bringing it down and bringing it everywhere, we will hopefully have this true tranquility of bringing that ultimate peace on earth with the coming of Mashiach. May it be now.